Um, this morning, we're continuing our look at, uh, we began our series last week on, on the life of Abraham. And uh, this morning uh, and next week and possibly the week after, we're going to be sharing on what is, is my passion. Um, I became a Christian as a 19-year-old. I had one of those dramatic um, conversion experiences. It was a sex, drugs, rock and roll kind of, of, of story. And um, it, was, it was amazing. But I think I'm still a Christian today, not just because of what occurred to me in that um, conversion experience where I really genuinely encountered God. But the following morning, uh, uh, the people who were responsible for uh, leading me to Jesus, sat me down and taught me, of all things, the blood covenant, Abrahamic covenant. Um, so what I'm going to share with you today and next week is what I heard as a brand new Christian. And what happened was the penny dropped for me. It just, Christianity made sense. And um, I believe that I'm still a follower of Jesus today because of these um, uh, truths that were uh, laid uh, down uh, into my life at a very formative stage. Last week, we um, read in Genesis chapter 12 uh, and verses 1 through to 5 that God promised um, Abraham three things, a, a, uh, a land, a child, and also that he would be a blessing uh, to the nations of the world. And um, it's been 10 long years since that uh, promise uh, was given by God. And Abraham is still uh, waiting to see the evidence of God's promise come to fruition in his life. And Abraham, given this length of time, is beginning to doubt and question the validity of um, what he's heard. Remember, Abraham is a moon worshipper who has um, had an encounter with this mysterious uh, God, um, the God, the, the one true God, and has left behind um, his idols and that which he's used to in pursuit of, of, of this God, and hoping to see evidence of the fulfillment of, the, of what this God has promised. And 10 years have passed, and there's absolutely nothing. And so he's struggling with doubt, and he begins to seek some kind of assurance from God that what has been promised to him will come to pass. And so in Genesis chapter 15 through verses 1 through to 18, um, we're going to read and pick up um, the story here. Verse 1 says, Sometime later, the Lord spoke to Abraham in a vision and said to him, Do not be afraid, Abraham, for I will protect you and your reward will be great. But Abraham replied, O sovereign Lord, what good are all your blessings when I don't even have a son? Since you've given me no children, Eliezer of Damascus, a servant in my household, will inherit all my wealth. You have given me no descendants of my own, so one of my servants will be my heir. Then the Lord said to him, No, your servant will not be your heir, for you will have a son of your own who will be your heir. Then the Lord took Abram outside and said to him, Look up into the sky and count the stars if you can. That's how many descendants you will have. And Abram believed the Lord, and the Lord counted him as righteous because of his faith. Then the Lord told him, I am the Lord who brought you out of the Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land as your possession. But Abram said, O sovereign Lord, how can I 
be sure that I will actually possess it. How can I know for sure? Abraham says, God, I, I, I hear what you're saying, but I want a watertight guarantee. This is not enough just to hear this voice come to me. I need to know for sure. And as we're going to see um, that although God's um, response that follows is completely alien to, to us, it makes perfect sense to Abraham in the world in which he lives. So Abraham's saying, how can I know for sure? And this is God's response. The Lord told him, bring me a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a partridge in a pear tree, and a young pigeon. And so Abraham presented all these to him and killed him. I find this really strange. I mean, God proved to me that what you've promised will come to pass, and God says, well, go and get some animals. Huh? Oh, it just doesn't add up, but it did to Abraham. So Abraham presented all these, these to him and killed them. Then he cut each animal down the middle, getting more and more bizarre, and laid the half side by side. He did not, however, cut the birds in half. Some vultures swooped down to eat the carcasses, but Abraham chased them away. And as the sun was going down, Abraham fell into a deep sleep, and a terrifying darkness came down over him. And after the sun went down and darkness fell, Abraham saw a smoking firepot and a flaming torch pass between the halves of the carcasses. So the Lord made a covenant with Abraham that day. Now let's be honest, that doesn't really make a lot of sense to us. Would that be, would that be true? And yet this is one of the most pivotal moments in, in the Bible. And so if this doesn't make sense to us, then there is a lot of the Bible that will not make sense to us. We have to understand what is taking place here in Genesis uh, chapter 15. Or the Bible, or most of the Bible, will remain something of a mystery to us. But when God says to Abraham, bring me a, a heifer, a goat, a ram, a turtle dove, and a pigeon, Abraham immediately knew what was about to take place. And what was happening, God was inv inviting Abraham to um, prepare or bring together the elements for what is known as a blood covenant ceremony. Now, it seems unusual to us, but in the context of Abraham's world, in the world in which Abraham lived, this was normal. It was, this was part of his life and part of his cultural setting. What was about to take place, and Abraham knew at the moment, God said to him, gather those things together and place them on the ground. Abraham knew that God was initiating a legally binding, unbreakable contract that was about to be sealed in blood. God was in effect saying to Abraham, Abraham, I want to lay to rest once and for all all of your doubts and suspicions that you have about my character and my ability to do what I said I would do. Abraham, you no longer have to mistrust me because I am about to seal and ratify all that I have promised in blood. You see, the ancient world in which Abraham lived was a storytelling culture. 
in which people would act out and dramatise their commitments and contracts. Today, if we have a contract, we, it's, it's something we do in writing, isn't it? It's a written, a written document. But in those days, they would act out, they would dramatise their, their, their contracts or their agreements. And throughout um, history... People from varied cultures have adopted some form of blood covenant ritual as their system for building relational security and trust. It was the way that the ancient world established guarantees. And there were three main reasons for, um, for entering into covenant. Number one is uh, for protection purposes. For example, if you were part of a, you were part of, you were a small tribe and there was a, a big tribe that you felt threatened by, what you would seek to do as a small tribe is you would seek to establish a blood covenant um, relationship with that larger tribe in order to provide um, a sense of safety and survival for you. You try to cut a covenant so that you, your, your tribe could be safe. Secondly, um, it was a way of uh, developing business security. So business people would um, create alliances with their competitors. They would establish mutually beneficial partnerships where they'd agree to work together rather than against one another and thereby um, increase their wealth. But the highest form of, of covenant was friendship where two people, as a, a sign of their deep love and their commitment for one another, um, would seal their devotion by making a blood covenant. Remember the story in 1 Samuel of Jonathan and David? No? There was a story in the Bible um, in 1 Samuel uh, where um, two men, David and Jonathan, enter into a blood covenant relationship. Okay? Now, there are a number of different methods of entering into a covenant, depending on what culture you are from. But the basic and most common form of blood covenant ceremony involved two people coming together and they would make a cut in their, in their hand or in their wrist so that blood flowed. In the Hebrew language, the Hebrew word for covenant is beret. B-E-R-I-T-H. And it means to cut, and it implies to cut in such a way so that blood flows. The other meaning behind this word um, covenant is to bind, which is very, very important. To cut so that blood flows and, and to bind. And what would happen is uh, in a, in a um, blood covenant, basic blood covenant ceremony, two people would cut their hands or their wrists and blood was flowing. This was before HIV and hepatitis and all that kind of stuff. Now, what does blood symbolise in the Bible? Life. The Bible says that life is in the blood. And so what they would do, I'm going to enter into covenant with George, which is amazing. He's a Sunderland's fan. I'm a Newcastle United fan. We traditionally don't like one another. Okay, but we're going to enter into covenant, and we're going to do that by we I'll get the knife. Get the knife, <laughs> beautiful, and we we shake hands. You might have seen a handshake like that. And what is happening is my blood is running out of my body into my friend's body, 
And his blood, his life is flowing out of his body and flowing into my body. Poor George, yeah. <laughs> and what we would say is we're, as we're grasping hold of one another's hands is my life is flowing into you, your life is flowing into me, we are one. And from then on, we would be known as blood brothers. We're blood brothers. You know the handshake, when we shake hands, that has its origin in blood covenant. So there was a time, probably not so long ago, maybe it's 40 or 50 years ago, where when you shook hands with somebody, your word was your bond and that handshake sealed the agreement. Now you wouldn't do that today, would you? But there was a time not long ago when a handshake was sufficient. That, that, that was it. That would do. A handshake was this pledge of a promise that you would keep your word, that you would be bound um, to your word. An alternative to this basic blood covenant ceremony, which was um, entered into by uh, or, or practiced by more primitive people, was they would take their blood and they would drop it into a cup of wine and they would stir the two bloods together with the wine and they would drink. Sounds gory, but that was a, a basic blood um, covenant. Sorry, the, the idea was the same. Is your life, represented by your blood, is flowing into me. And my life, represented by my blood, is flowing into you. And we have become one. Now, kind of the foundational um, thinking behind um, the blood covenant ceremony uh, was this. Number one is if I broke covenant with George, it would mean my death. It would be unthinkable to enter into covenant with somebody and then break the covenant. So you never entered into covenant with somebody flippantly or casually. This was an incredibly solemn event. Secondly, um, I have absolute confidence in the integrity of the person with whom I am entering into covenant with. I believe that they're trustworthy because this is an unbreakable contract that we are entering into. Thirdly, I'm entering into a bond that unites me or binds me in a permanent union with my covenant partner. So this idea of oneness or union actually sits at the very heart of blood covenant thinking. Blood brothers never viewed themselves or were viewed by other people, were never viewed by other people as independent entities. Whenever somebody would think of George, they would think of me. Whenever they thought of me, they would think of George. Okay? Our lives are forever intertwined. And then number four, not only have we entered into covenant, uh, but we become covenant heads. Which means all of my children, whether they're born or unborn, and all of George's children, whether they're born or unborn, actually enter into covenant with us. We become representative uh, heads of an 
enduring covenant. Unless it's stipulated otherwise, our kids are in this deal as well. That was the kind of foundational thinking behind the blood covenant ceremony. Now, the Middle Eastern um, people... So what I'm sharing with you is actually anthropology. This is how the world worked in ancient times. This was, this was um, the way that it was. Okay, This is why... The Bible is so wonderful. We actually need to understand the Bible didn't happen in a vacuum. It happened within a social context. There were things that were going on that the Bible just takes for granted. That's why there's no explanation about blood covenant because it was assumed that the people to whom this was originally written, it made sense to them. It just so happens that for us, 4,000 years later, we've lost the meaning of covenant. But for the original readers of this text, it was highly relevant. They knew exactly what was taking, taking place. So within the Middle Eastern um, uh, uh, culture, there was a very dramatic form of blood covenant ceremony which involved the following components. This was the kind of the milieu of which the Israel was part, which the Hebrew people, from which... Uh, originated with, with Abraham. This is, this is the kind of thinking, this is what took place in their world. The first thing that they would do... Okay, we're going to keep going, George. Yeah. What I would do, if I was... At, yeah, jump up. Yep. The first thing that I would do, we would do, is we would take off our jackets. The jacket symbolised my personhood or our personhood and also our property. And we would swap mantles or cloaks and we would put them on. And that was what we were basically saying is, I'm putting on... that You look good in that, George. <laughs> Have you got any money in the What's pocket? There's nothing in here, mate. I was going to ask where your wallet was. Yeah, my wallet. I, I intentionally left my wallet in, uh, in the bag there. And what we would declare as we exchanged these jackets was, was this. I give myself and my property to you. I and all that I have is yours. What we were acting out is this symbology of taking on the life and the identity of someone other than ourselves that our lives or my life was now wrapped up in the life of somebody else and somebody else's life was now wrapped up and intertwined with my life. And so we would no longer view one another as being autonomous individuals, but we saw ourselves as one. And the good news is, everything that George has is now mine. The bad news for you, George, is everything I have is now yours, which is, uh, I think, I have the better deal. But there is a sense in which whenever I need anything, I just have to come and... In fact, I probably don't even have to knock on George's door and ask. It's just mine. There is, it's shared. Okay? We got that one. Thank you. Thanks. Yeah, you're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> Typical person from Sunderland. <laughs> Thank you. 
The next thing that we would do is exchange belts. Now, in our world today, belts are used to keep up our pants or they're kind of a fashion accessory. But in those days, the, the belt was used to hold our weaponry. That's where we attached our sword, our whatever, whatever, whatever it might be. And what the belt symbolised in this exchange of belts was um, our mutual commitment to be uh, a protector and a defender of our covenant partner. If anyone attacked George, they were attacking me. If anyone attacked me, they were also attacking George. And from that moment on, we never fought a battle by ourselves. There was always the guarantee that someone would come to our defence. Remember the story of Dr Livingston? Dr Livingston, I presume? Um, he was a pioneer um, missionary explorer in, in Africa. And when he went there in the, um, uh, uh, in the 1800s, he stumbled on this concept of, of covenant. And what um, uh, Livingston did was he entered into multiple um, blood covenant relationships with um, African tribes. And on his arms, on his arms, he had scores, marks of the different tribes that he'd enter into a blood covenant relationship with. And that was his passport to travel around Africa in safety. Because all he had to do was lift up his arms when he moved into a new territory. And those kind of fierce-looking uh, tribes that, that, that um, he encountered didn't know who he was in covenant relationship because every one of those tribes had pledged themselves to be David Livingstone's protector and would fight on his behalf. The third thing would happen is that we would um, take an animal, a bull or a sheep, and um, we would take it and we would slit it right down, cut it right down the middle. It was incredibly bloody and, and gory. And we would lay the two parts down on the ground. Jump up again, George. You've worked for your... Uh... What we're going to do is we're going to stand back to back and imagine that there is an animal over there and I've got a part of an animal here. What we're going to do is we're going to walk around in a figure eight, okay? And we're going to meet in the middle. So we would walk around um, in a figure eight, which is a symbol... So what you do is turn around, walk that way, and walk around in a figure eight. Yep, you got that. Come back, come back. And then, just to use your imagination, everybody. There we go. Surprise, surprise. Fancy meeting you here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We've just what this the the figure eight is a symbol of infinity. It has no beginning and no end. What we're, what we're demonstrating, what we're proclaiming in that action is we have begun a walk that will continue through all the way through our lives and go into eternity. We meet in the middle. We would stand face to face and we would um, um, express the conditions of the covenant. We would identify the blessings and the cursings and the oaths and the promises. And then what we would do is we would then... 
make a cut in our hand so blood flowed, we would hold, hold hands. This is the Middle Eastern um, form of covenant. And um, the two of us at that moment in time, as we stood in the midst of a slain animal, with our hands gripped, my blood flowing out of my body into my covenant friend's body and his blood flowing into my body, we at that moment in time became one. Not just us, but all of our future descendants, all of our kids are included in this moment. We're also turning our, our backs on living life independently. This was about us walking together into the future. Thanks, Mike. I think that's all. Sure. I'm positive, yeah. <laughs> Give them a rack, right? <laughs> we now share a life in common. We would then trade names. So I'd add something of um, George's name to my name. So I'd be Sutton Smith and he would be Smith Sutton or something like that. And so we would be known by one another's names. Are you kind of thinking perhaps now marriage? Yep. Marriage is the closest thing we have in our society today, resembling a blood covenant. We would seal the wound that we've um, made and um, we would treat it with a, a dye or a pigment so that there would be a permanent scar. Ever wonder why you wear a wedding ring? It's to act... Sorry, what was that? I missed that one. Some smart remark. A permanent, a permanent scar. <laughs> you see, that scar acted as a permanent reminder... Every time I looked at it, I'm not doing life by myself. I have a covenant partner. I have a covenant, I have a covenant friend. I'm not alone. But I also have responsibilities to someone other than myself. It was also that mark, as I mentioned, it was also assigned to others. That you don't pick on me because you just don't know how big my covenant partner is. You don't know what resources... My, my covenant friend has at their disposal. Because I might not look, a lot, look like I've got a lot, I might not have a lot, but you just don't know who my partner is. Did it work with women too? Did it work with women too? Um, no. Not back then, it didn't. If you had been here last night, you would have heard a really good exposition of of um, the gender bias that comes out uh, through the how, how scripture has been translated and how the Bible is um, so wonderfully inclusive and this idea of a tra trajectory towards a world in which it will be like it was in the beginning with Adam and Eve standing together as mutual partners. Um, we just got messed up and lost in the way, but we're working towards that. Then in the presence of witnesses, we would declare our covenant um, to our covenant partner something like this. All I have is yours. My property and resources are all available to you. If you ever have a need, all you need to do is come and ask and I will give it to you. If you have a debt, 
I promise to clear it. My children are yours. When I die, they become yours by adoption, and you will raise them as your own. After that pronouncement, we would then share a covenant meal together. And it would consist of, surprise, surprise, bread and wine. And what we would do is we would break bread and we would feed each other. And in the act of feeding one another, that bread symbolized my life. And as you eat this bread, you are t- recogn- there is this recognition that my life has entered into into you and my life enters in your life enters into me as I partake of that bread. And as we share the cup, what we are declaring is that the wine represents the blood of the animal sacrifice and also our own blood that we have shed in the exchange of life. Then finally a memorial would be established. Maybe as a tree is planted or a A stone is placed somewhere and it's sprinkled uh, with blood. And that memorial was to bear witness to the covenant that we had entered into. And once that um, memorial is done, um, the ceremony is now complete. And the two of us from that moment on are known as blood brothers or as friends. There's an ancient Arabic saying, and that is that blood is thicker than milk. Blood is thicker than, than milk. And what that means is the, um, the bond between blood brothers is deeper than two siblings that have been nursed at the same breast. This is a relationship of incredible depth. Now, what the remarkable story of the Bible is this. is God initiated and entered into such a blood covenant relationship with Abraham. That's what was taking place in Genesis 15. God was initiating a blood covenant relationship. And God stepped into Abraham's world and interacted with him in a way that was familiar to Abraham. And for Abraham, it must have blew his socks. It must have blown his mind because he knew exactly what God was doing. God was entering into an eternal, unbreakable union with Abraham, but not just with Abraham, also all of his descendants. were there in that moment we were there because the Bible tells us that we are Abraham's descendants not by blood but by faith so whatever God has promised Abraham will come to pass because you would never ever ever, ever, ever lie to your covenant partner. You just don't. It's unthinkable. 
Abraham has his watertight guarantee that God will fulfill his promise because God has cut a covenant and God has sealed it with blood. And God has pledged himself to irrevocably bind himself to Abraham and Abraham's descendants forever. This is what blew my mind as a one-day-old Christian because the penny dropped. Little old me was one with God. I'm in, I'm in frigging union with God forever. And it's not going to come to an end. It goes on for infinity. It's eternal, unbreakable. And as you unpack the story of Abraham, which I alluded to last week, Abraham blew it and he messed up and he picked himself up and he dusted himself off and he kept going and he mucked up again and he... Sound familiar? Sound a bit like your life? But Abraham was bound forever in union with God. And the thing that I got as a one-day-old Christian was my life has been bound up in the very life of God. It's unbreakable, unseparable, and I'm going to mess up and muck up along the way, but nothing can break this eternal covenant. And I will doubt and I will question and I will fall over and I'll fail, but I am forever bound. You are forever bound together with God. There's a bit of other stuff we could unpack. I just don't have time for it now. But what we're going to do next week is we're going to look a little bit more at this covenant because I've only told you part of the story. There's actually some really, really good stuff as well in addition to what I've said. Some of the symbology behind this ancient ceremony. And we're going to talk about how that relates. What does the cloak mean in regards to our relationship with God? What does that mean for us today? And what does it mean for us to be in covenant relationship with God? But let me just give you... When we go into the New Testament and it talks about being united together with Christ, that's covenant. When Jesus talks about us being one with him, he being us and we being in him, that's all covenant language. The Bible doesn't make sense. A lot of it doesn't make sense unless we have a reference point to covenant. And hopefully over the next couple of weeks, your eyes will be opened to see the Bible and some of the things in there that it might have been a mystery to you in days gone by. Some of you still haven't got this, but that's okay. We'll, we'll, we'll keep going. Next week, not today, don't worry. Let's, um, let's pray. Loving God, we invite you to come and open our eyes, our hearts, our minds to this um, incredible truth. And 
Lord, if nothing else, that we would go away pondering what it might mean for us to be one with you. Lord, may revelation come. May the light of your word come alive to us, we pray. In your precious name, amen.